Today we are in our final week of our series titled Extraordinary or Extraordinary, depending on how you want to read it. And over the last month, over this month of October, we've been looking at the life of a family who, has been walked, who had walked through a lot of issues. Uh, the life of Ruth and Naomi and Elimelech, and, and we've looked at how God takes the ordinary in our lives, the ordinary stresses, the ordinary events, and works them into the extraordinary. And building off of our understanding of reality today, we're going to bring our discussion of Ruth to a close. And we're going to look at Boaz's character and God's use of ordinary people, and we'll soon discover that, that God's plan far exceeds our understanding and that God's work and that God's, God works in extraordinary ways, far beyond what we believe is even possible. Well, God has the power to take the ordinary in our lives and turn it into the extraordinary. And over the last three weeks, we've walked with a family that went through numerous trials. Uh, there were times of great joy. Uh, there was times of childbirth, and, and there were times of these great leaps of faith that, that Naomi and, and Elimelech took. Um, and there were times of tragedy. There were tra- tragedies such as, such as death, death of a spouse, death of a child, scarcity, and, and the reality of, of difficult choices in life. Do you move? Do you stay? And in each twist and turn, we have seen each person, Naomi, Elimelech, and Ruth, and Boaz, faced with these hard decisions in life. And, and through it all, God has been at work and has turned the ordinary in their lives into the extraordinary. And today our series comes to an end. However, the story of Ruth continues past these few pages found in this small book of the Old Testament titled Ruth. You see, God's extraordinary work in this story reaches well beyond the threshing room floor and beyond the gleaning of the barley and the wheat and the fields. God's extraordinary plays out on a much, much grander scale, much grander than we could even imagine in this story. But that is the reality of the world that we often fail to see when we really start to think about God's grandeur. See, God's extraordinary work often goes well beyond our failed concept of reality. You see, how we perceive and frame our understanding of God impacts how we understand and interact with God's extraordinary work within our ordinary lives. So, today, to better frame our discussion, uh, I want to, and to help bring our discussion of Ruth to a close, I want to begin by challenging your frame of reality. Your game? Okay, I I think it's going to be fun. Uh, To do that, I'm going to share with you an illustration uh, that changed my frame of reality. And it comes from a book called Christianity with Power, Your Worldview and Your Experience of the Supernatural. And it's by Charles H. Kraft. I was, it was required reading, reading when I was in seminary. Um, and this book significantly impacted my, my view of reality as I was growing in my theological education. 
and my understanding of how God's, God actively is present in the world around me. So, in brief, here is my interpretation of how our view of reality is ultimately filtered. Filtered. I'm going to use the word filtered um, quite a lot. I got my fancy whiteboard out this morning, which you know I am an artist at heart. Um, but there are, there are specific factors that influence our view of reality, and so I'm going to start with um, a box that represents our, our reality. So there's a box here over on the right, and this is going to be our view of penmanship is also not my strong suit. Um, view of reality, neither is spelling. Uh, my view of reality, our view of reality. So that's our box. Okay? That's what we're going to get to eventually. There's our, there's our goal. Um, our view of reality is both physical and non-physical. It's, it's, uh, it's tangible and it's not tangible. And, and a very easy example of this in our world today is online banking. Okay? Online banking is both real and not real. Right? There is physical money somewhere, they promise us, and we can see it on our cell phones and on our online accounts. And we can use it to buy things online that supposedly is transferring somewhere. Right? It is real, but it's not. So reality can both be real and not real. It is both tangible, and you can hold it in your hand. You can go to the bank and draw money out of the ATM. You can physically see it, physically touch it, and it can be non-physical. So when we talk about our view of reality, we're talking about both physical and non-physical reality at the same time. And, and online banking, I think, is, is a really simple, common illustration of, of kind of how reality can be in both realms at the same time. But our view of reality is filtered by many different things. And each filter or lens reduces our scope of reality, kind of like telescoping back down and down and down and filtering it down by levels. So we live in a post-Christian world. We do. We really live in a post-Christian world, and we live in a highly educated society. And so the first lens that we often begin with that filters and decreases is what we believe is possible. So I'm going to make some, some arrows here. And this is, these are arrows, and I'm going to call this what we believe is possible. And this is our first lens. What we believe is possible. This is what is the first lens that starts filtering things out. Things that we don't believe is possible kind of get filtered out. Gone. This is the first reduction of our view of reality. What we believe is possible. And then we start going through another filtering process. Whatever makes it through what we believe is possible goes through the next step, which is what we experience. Oh, yes, another lens, what we experience. We experience this. We have a feeling with it. In our spiritual lives, what we experience is often um, that Holy Spirit mo moment in our lives. I experienced God in a tangible way in this one moment. 
I know it was God. I may not be able to articulate it in my life, but I know it was God. It was real. It was a Holy Spirit encounter. Okay? That's, that's what we experience. I drew money out of the ATM. It's really there. Okay? I know it's tangible, so I can trust my online banking. Right? It's, it's physical and it's non-physical. It's tangible and it's not tangible. Okay? And so we filter it down again. Some things that we, we don't experience, that, that winning the lotto thing has not come real yet, so that's, uh, that's, that's just not, that's filtered, been filtered out now. Okay? So there's another filter. And finally, we add this, this last filter that forms into our reality. And, and so each step of the way, getting to our view of reality, this last one is what we analyze what we analyze. And I know the spelling is, is small to read, but you can come up and take a picture afterwards, and it's on the board up there. So, oh, I can check my spelling. Awesome. Analyze. Should have read that in advance. Analyze. Now I, can, now I can proof it. What we analyze. We live in a highly educated world where science and scientific thought dominate our, our, our culture, where you can check anything on Snoops, on Facebook, to check its if it's valid or not, we analyze everything. We no longer say, wow, when something happens. What do we say? How. Our first response is not wow, it's how. Our view of reality, the last thing, is what we analyze. Filters. And this comes right out of Kraft's book. What is important to realize is that where we start is not where we end. What we, where we start is not where we end. What we believe, what we believe in our hearts is not our view of reality, is it? Where we start is not our view of reality. But the problem is, is there's still a piece missing. You notice the graphic is not all the way over. That's not an editorial error. Just so you know, a little foreshadowing to the message. There's a missing part, and that is the extraordinary reality that is God. There's a missing component. Paul says in Romans 11:13, Oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. How impossible it is for me to understand his decisions and his ways. The part that is missing is all that actually happens. All that happens. There's a lot more arrows on this side. It takes a minute. All that happens. All that happens is the actual reality that exists in the universe. Sometimes we forget that God is at work beyond our perception, and we forget that just because we don't experience it here, just because we don't experience it doesn't mean that it's not happening outside of our view. We, we take all that we can conceptualize that is occurring, all that, we can, all that we believe, all that we experience, all that we analyze, and we filter it down, our belief, our experience, our analysis, into our view, this, this personal view, this personal perception. And we forget that God is working in the extraordinary 
behind it all. And our view of reality, right here, our view of reality and the truth that is God, the truth that is God's omnipresence and, and God's omnipotence, it can shake your paradigm of God. And this is why Ruth's story, this is why Ruth's story is not only important, but why it is so culturally relevant to us, especially right now in our culture, in a post-Christian world. Because as we get to Ruth's story, the ending of Ruth's story, we catch a glimpse of how God turns these little pieces of these ordinary lives into the masterpiece of his grand design for the entire created universe. How all that happens blows our view of reality completely away. Blows it right out the window. And so today we, we pick up the story of Ruth in chapter 4. After Ruth's encounter with Boaz on the threshing room floor, Boaz, surprise, surprise, has decided he's going to marry her. Right? I'm going to marry that girl. And for him to do so, he must first make a legal agreement with Ruth's closest of kin. In Jewish tradition, it was the responsibility of the nearest of kin to marry a widow to provide an heir. Um, if you remember in Jesus' time when talking about the resurrection, there was a, a, a Sadducee that came to Jesus and said, um, a husband dies leaving a wife without an heir, and so he marries the, marries the brother without an heir and dies and marries a brother, and seven times this happens. Whose wife and husband are they going to be in eternity? And Jesus said, you missed the point completely. This was still a discussion that was happening in Jesus' time. It was still a tradition years and years later. When the marriage took place, the family property would be secured because we were, we're talking about a patriarchal society. And we may not like it, we may not live in it, but it was a reality of the culture. We don't have to like it. It's okay. I didn't like it either. I don't like it. Ask my wife. She doesn't like it. Boaz has a dilemma. He is not Elimelech's closest living relative. Because Elimelech's estate rested with Naomi, not with Ruth. And that means that according to the religious and cultural standards, it was not his place to marry Ruth. It was someone else's responsibility. And so Boaz has a decision to make. And being a man of high character, being a man of high character, he chooses the high road. Because character is really important. Now, my father told me that growing up, and I didn't believe him until I got older, and now I'm telling it to my sons. And my daughter, even though she's two, I figure it's never too early to instill that principle. Boaz was a man of godly character. And it's essential, essential that we understand the importance of character. It really is, especially in our world today. We live in a time and a culture where, where we give lip service to having good character. We, we say character, we say character is important, don't we? But fail to hold others accountable to standards of moral and ethical character. I'll leave it at that. Nonetheless, character is significant. When I think of personal character, 
I think of my grandfather. He was a man of impeccable character. He was not a rich man by any means. He lived his life for what he believed was right and true, even if it meant that he had to go without, which he often did, even if he had to suffer, which he often did. What defined his character for me was his willingness to sacrifice for others and to give and serve others, no matter what the cost. And I bet that each of us here can think of someone that we would say has impeccable character, someone that we aspire to be like. And for me, that man would be like my grandfather, a man of godly character, a woman of godly character. Boaz was such a man. At first glance, we might assume that he only wanted to marry Ruth because of some crazy night on the threshing room floor. But that's not the reason at all. He was not trying to get hitched to a trophy wife as an older man to a young widow in need. He was not trying to inherit Elimelech's money, land, or fields, thereby increasing his profit margins and business portfolio. Boaz had one goal, one focus in marrying Ruth, and it had nothing to do with him. Nothing at all. And we'll get to it in just a second. Boaz has to go to the town gate first. And he finds Naomi's, or Elimelech's closest of kin. And he sits down with him at the city gate. And he calls ten leaders from the town to sit with him as witnesses. And he tells the relative that Naomi is going to sell Elimelech's land. And to give him, and he gives him the first chance to buy it. You got the opportunity. Naomi's going to sell the land. Now she can't do anything with it because she's a woman. I know. It, I know. Boaz tells him to buy that now in front of everybody. Because she needs to sell it. But if he doesn't want, to, doesn't want it, to give it to Boaz to buy because he's next in line to be the family's redeemer, to be able to buy the land. So the relative says, okay, yeah, of course I'm going to buy the land. More land for me, more money. Right? Simple decision. More money in my pocket, more land. It's good for me. And this is where it gets fun. So then Boaz told him, of course, I like this, of course that means... Your purchasing of the land from Naomi also requires you to marry Ruth, the Moabite widow. That way she can have children who will carry on her husband's name and keep the land in the family. Oh, well then I can't redeem it. The family redeemer replied, because this might endanger my own estate. You redeem the land, I cannot. Mm -hmm personal interests in that, right? There's a danger. There's a foreigner involved here. I know. I don't like it either. It's the culture we're talking about. Then Boaz said to the elders and to the crowd standing around, you are all witnesses today. I have brought forth uh, from Naomi, I bought from Naomi all of the property of Elimelech, Kilion and uh, Mahon, and with all the land I have acquired from, and with the land I have acquired Ruth. I don't like the language either. Patriarchal system, I understand. The Moabite widow, 
to be my wife. This way, she can have a son to carry on the family name of her dead husband and to inherit the family property here in his hometown. You are all witnesses today. Did you hear why? Did you hear why Boaz wanted to marry Ruth? Boaz wanted to marry Ruth so that she could have a son and carry on the family name of her dead husband to inherit the family property in his, Naomi's, and Elimelech's hometown. Boaz was willing to go out of his way to see that Ruth's family line and inheritance would live on with the possibility that his own estate could be in jeopardy. Ruth, a Moabite widow who had no rights in the Jewish culture, living in Bethlehem as a widow, but who was faithful and willing to commit her life to Naomi, her mother-in-law, who she had no obligation to, and to God, who was not the God of her family, to see her returned home and honored, to go well out of her way to bless her mother-in-law, Naomi, Boaz didn't want the property for himself. He didn't want to be an heir of the estate. He wanted to make sure that Ruth's line, Naomi and Elimelech's line, could continue. The way that God takes the ordinary and turns it into the extraordinary is that he, when, when our choices define our character, God takes those characters and magnifies them, magnifies them. Our choices define our character. What we do, what we do and how we do it and why we do what we do define our character. It defines us. And it's not about what we say we're going to do. What matters is what we actually do. If we were to create a visual uh for this, I would just put one word. I'm running out of space. I'll do it in red. Action. One word. This is the choice that we make that defines our character. It's the action that we take. Not the words that we speak. Such is Boaz's marrying Ruth. The, underli- the underlining of the choice that defines the character is how. What we do, how we do it, and why we do it. If the word is what we do, I said that, the word is action. If what we do is the word, if how we do it, is underlining it. Then how we do it, or the why we do it, is highlighting it. Pretend that's a highlighter. It takes all three. It's more than words. It's what we do, it's how we do it, and it's the why and the intention behind it. All three together. The how matters. The why matters. 
the intention matters. And the intention of the heart, I think, is the most critical definer of our character. It's one thing to say you're going to do something. It's another thing to, to do it. It's another thing to do it with malicious intent. Because everyone knows somebody who does something on an angle. Right? Sometimes people do nice things because they want something from you. Sometimes people do things because they're godly people of character. In 1 Samuel 16, 7, God said to Samuel, The Lord does not see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The, the way that the people around us may never know our intentions. When we say, we can say whatever we want to say as far as intentions go. But the why is important because God knows the state of our hearts and we can't fool God. When the what and the how and the why of our choices glorify God like Boaz's did, God magnifies our character into a godly character. So the story goes on. Boaz took Ruth into his home and she became his wife. And they slept together and the Lord enabled her to become pregnant and she gave birth to a son. And then the woman of the town, the women of the town said to Naomi, praise the Lord who has now provided a redeemer for your family. May this child be famous in Israel. May he restore your youth and care for you in old age. For he is the son of your daughter-in-law who loves you and has been better to you than seven sons. That is a huge compliment in a patriarchal society. A daughter has been better to you than seven sons. Finally, everything seems to be moving in the right direction. In times of scarcity, we either curse God or reach out in prayer, right? In our lives in times of scarcity, when things go bad, we either say thank you, God, or help me, God, or curse you, God. However, when the abundance comes, I wonder, do we respond in the same way? Sometimes we forget that our first response should always be, thank you, God. Our first response should always be, praise the Lord. Boaz put in the hours and the work, and he worked the system. Still, Boaz's first response was, should be, praise the Lord. Ruth put in the hard work of gleaning, being patient, and she lived devoted, her life devoted to Naomi. And still, Ruth's first response should be, Praise the Lord. Naomi, who returned to Bethlehem broken, bitter, and jaded, now holding her grandson in her arm, her first response should be, Praise the Lord. James 1.17 reminds us, Whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down from us from God, our Father, who created all the lights of heaven. He never changes or casts a shifting shadow. You see, good things come from God's extraordinary abundance. Every good thing, even the smallest blessing, even the smallest thing, comes from God's abundance. We must never forget, never forget, never, never forget that this, every blessing comes from God who is the author of life. And God is doing more, more than we ever believe is possible on this side of the diagram. And that our smallest blessings can change our lives. Even the smallest things can transform our lives. Have you ever had a small thing change your life? Small things change our lives. 
The blessing of marriage between Boaz and Ruth changed the family tree for Ruth. The son that Ruth and Boaz had, Obed, changed Naomi's heart. And believe it or not, Obed went on to change the world. Uh, and it's reported like this. Naomi took the baby and cuddled him. And she cared for him as if he were her own. Who said grandmas aren't important? The neighbor women said, Now at last Naomi has a son again. Remember, she had lost her sons. And finally she's holding her grandchild, her grandson. And they named him Obed, and he became the father of Jesse and the grandfather of David. The smallest blessings can become, God, can become God's extraordinary in the world. Small blessings change lives. While Ruth was struggling to find her way through every trial, God was ready to take each small blessing and turn it into an extraordinary, world-transforming encounter of God's grace. Obed became the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David, as in King David. Thirty generations down the family tree from Ruth and Boaz, another child was born in Bethlehem, but this one didn't have a family property to come home to, just a legacy left for him. So his mother gave birth to him in a stable because there was no room left in the inn. And that child changed the course of the world and changes our lives today. Ruth was the great-grandmother of King David. Jesus Christ, our risen Lord and Savior, born in the city of David, Bethlehem, was born in the line of David, his earthly family his earthly heritage. If there were ever an example, ever an example of all that happens outside of our view of reality, this would be it in my mind. And here's the kicker. God is at work in the same way today in our lives too. Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is working in extraordinary ways in and through our lives too. Because Ruth was just an ordinary person. Boaz was just an ordinary person. I'm just an ordinary person. Now, you're all extraordinary. But God's doing the same thing in our lives too. And who's to say 30 generations from now what God's going to be doing with your family line. We may not see it. We may not perceive it. We may not even understand it. But that doesn't mean that it's not happening. And that doesn't mean that God's not doing it. All it means is that we're filtering it out. And it's just not a part of our personal view of our reality. And maybe it's time that our, we opened our hearts and our minds to a grander vision of all that God is doing in our world and our universe around us rhetorical question. Do you think that Ruth had any idea that God was planning to use her son, Obed, to be the grandfather of King David? Do you think that Ruth, as mother, played any part of developing the character of Obed that would be the grandfather to King David? My grandfather helped determine my character as a person today. Do you think Obed's character played any part in King David's? Do you think Ruth's life story 
imparted anything into Obed's life, into Jesse's life, into King David's life, 30 generations later, into the life of Jesus Christ. Does Ruth's story matter? I think it does. I think it does a whole lot. I really do. I don't think Ruth saw it. I think that Ruth's vision and her view of reality was way over here and had filtered way down like most of ours have. But that doesn't mean that God's not working. It's possible. It is possible that our limited view of reality prevents us from seeing God's extraordinary in our lives. Here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to open up your worship folder to above the calendar and look at the next steps with me. And we'll go through those for just a minute. The first next step in the next steps this week is to read Galatians 5, 22 and 23. This week I challenge you to read those two verses and think about your, the person that you look at in your life as a spiritual role model. That section of, talks about the fruits of the Spirit. How do you define, or how do they demonstrate the gifts of the Spirit? Someone you define as a spiritual role model, how do they use those gifts? And I want you to turn the lens on yourself and give yourself an honest reflection. How does your character line up with the person of character that you want to aspire to be like? The next step is to say thank you to God as blessings come. Sometimes our reactions are more significant than our actions in life. That's just the way we are. We become reactive. So I challenge you to, let, to, to intentionally make your first response be an act of praise. Say thank you, God. Say thank God. Say something that's an adoration of praise to God when blessings come. Whatever your line of adoration is, whatever your line of praise is, say thank you to God this week when things happen. The third thing to do, and this may be the most challenging, is to start your day by writing 10 things that you're thankful for. It's called your gold list. And this is hard, and it takes practice. I challenge you to start your day by writing 10 things that you are thankful for. God uses little blessings to transform lives. Little blessings can become extraordinary things. Being thankful for each blessing is important. So I, I encourage you and challenge you to just make a list every day in the morning, first thing, 10 things that you're thankful for. Write it down, stick to the mirror, put it in your Bible, whatever you want to do, put it on your phone. Every morning, 10 things. Don't let your view of reality prevent you from realizing and recognizing that God is at work in extraordinary ways behind everything that's going on in your life. Let's pray together. God, you exist beyond all that we can comprehend. Still, you love us and sent your son Jesus to die for us. It is amazing how you work through the little things in such extraordinary ways. You take people like Ruth and Boaz and use their lives to inspire and impact others. You're a part of family histories. You even sent your son to be human among us. You are truly extraordinary. And all we can say is thank you, Lord, for loving us, 
Thank you for your grace and your mercy in our lives. And most importantly, Lord, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who you sent to this earth, who died for our sins and offer us salvation. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.